From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. The amount of casualties they're taking are so high, and this, this war has been such a disaster, that it is a, an outcome that could destabilize the Russian regime. And once things get unstable in Moscow, we are in some really scary territory. That's Tom Nichols. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where he writes the Atlantic Daily Newsletter. A political scientist and former professor of national security at the U.S. Naval War College, Nichols is an expert in foreign policy, Russia, and threats to democracy. Some of you may also remember Nichols from the Indian Food Summit, which consisted of Nichols and me eating Indian food together after he tweeted that the cuisine was terrible. Together, we raised money for COVID relief in India. This week, Nichols joins me to discuss Trump's third presidential campaign, the state of the war in Ukraine, and whether we actually are in danger of a fascist takeover. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Blake, who asks, what's your big takeaway from the Durham report? Is it a nothing burger? So of course, Blake is talking about this long-awaited report that's four years in the making, that goes to some 300 pages, which criticizes the FBI in a sort of technical way for the way they went about the investigation called Crossfire Hurricane, relating to the relationship between Donald Trump and Russia. Now, you know, depending on what side of the aisle you're on and where you are in the political spectrum and what your partisan feelings are, you think it's either a lightning bolt or an earthquake. And then on the other end of the spectrum, a nothing burger. I don't know if it's quite a nothing burger, but it's closer to that end of the spectrum as far as I'm concerned. First of all, there's nothing especially new in the final Durham report. Also, along the way, there have been reasons to criticize how the investigation has unfolded. There were two criminal jury trials that resulted in full acquittals for each defendant. So that's two juries, 12 each, 24 people. Sometimes juries do that, but when you have two in connection with the same investigation, that tells you something. There was the incident during the course of the Durham investigation when one of his deputies, highly respected former acting U.S. attorney Nora Danahy, resigned from her post. And I think a lot of the credible reporting was she was uncomfortable with the way that investigation was being conducted and the way it had unfolded. The bottom line on the Durham report released this week is that he's not making any further recommendations 
about how the FBI should conduct itself, didn't find corruption, is not recommending any additional charges. So the more you think about it, and the more you realize was spent on it and the resources expended, it's not unfair to think of it sort of as a nothing burger. By the way, there's already been an inquiry about the investigation known as Crossfire Hurricane, and it was completed four years ago. And it was done by the Inspector General at the Justice Department, which found fault with the FBI and resulted in various reforms undertaken by the FBI. In fact, I'll leave you with the statement from the FBI in the wake of the release of the Durham report, which I think sums it up pretty well. Quote, the conduct in 2016 and 2017 that special counsel Durham examined was the reason that current FBI leadership already implemented dozens of corrective actions, which have now been in place for some time. Had those reforms been in place in 2016, the missteps identified in the report could have been prevented. This report reinforces the importance of ensuring the FBI continues to do its work with the rigor, objectivity, and professionalism that the American people deserve and rightly expect, end quote. So, you know, there are real issues and real concerns about how the FBI did its investigation and how it was predicated. But the Durham report, as far as I can tell, doesn't really add much to the picture. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user at A. Miko Levine. Could Trump's conviction in NYC affect the length of his sentence if convicted in Georgia or by DOJ? He would be a convicted felon, which changes the calculus, yes? DOJ can tell its jury about previous Trump convictions. Yes, well, you're right. I don't know the particulars of how sentencing operates and what the sentencing ranges are in Georgia for conviction of violating election rules and trying to influence an election illegally in Georgia. But I do know that under the federal sentencing guidelines, if someone is convicted of a crime in connection with sentencing, a judge is supposed to consult the federal sentencing guidelines. And if someone has prior convictions, depending on how serious the convictions were, they do enter into the calculus with respect to what the sentence should be. Now, depending on what Donald Trump is convicted of in the case that Alvin Bragg has brought in Manhattan, it may not have a consequential effect. If he's only convicted of a misdemeanor, it probably will not have much of an effect. It's possible it has something of an effect on the range if he's convicted of one or more felonies, but it definitely will be in the mix because recidivism, even if you're talking about different kinds of crimes, is something that judges take into account when they're sentencing someone. As for your second question, about whether DOJ can tell the jury about previous Trump convictions, the answer to that is absolutely not. There are certain circumstances, I guess, in cross-examination, if a defendant takes the stand in limited circumstances, that person can be cross-examined about prior crimes, but otherwise, in the government's affirmative case, they are not allowed to talk about prior convictions. That's prejudicial and not probative. So yes to question one, no to question two. This question comes in a tweet from Twitter user at Jan C. Norte, who asks a simple question, Preet, what are you reading these days? Well, in sort of a departure from the kinds of things I normally read, I have picked up a book that I haven't started reading yet because of my interest in storytelling and some of the other creative things I do. It's a book by Robert McKee, and it's called Story. And it's largely about screenwriting, I'm told, but I haven't read it yet. But more importantly, it's about how to structure a story, how to tell a story, how to move a story along. And I think that's an important thing, just not only in what I do in the podcast and what I do sometimes as a lawyer, but also what I do and I'm trying to do creatively otherwise. So Robert McKee, who is he? He's one of the most notable screenwriters in the history of the country. He taught a very, very famous class for many, many years. I think it's called Story. And his students 
have written, directed, or produced pretty much every famous television series, movie that you've ever seen or ever loved. I'll let you know how it is. The final question comes in a tweet from Twitter user at Doc Egon Spengler, who asks my favorite question of all time. He writes, have you ever been told that you speak in a cadence not entirely unlike that of Christopher Walken? And in fact, would probably do a killer impression of him. So um, as I pointed out on Twitter, that is a very high compliment. I'm a big fan of Christopher Walken in pretty much everything he has done. Probably the reason, and I don't know if other people agree with this, a couple of people have mentioned it before, uh, the cadence of my talking involves a lot of pausing. And I think I pause at unusual moments in sentences because I'm trying to think a little faster than I'm capable of thinking. And so I need to pause to gather my thoughts, unlike smarter people. Do I have a killer impression of him? I don't, but I'm going to work on it. And when it gets better, maybe I'll recite the watch scene from Pulp Fiction in Christopher Walken Cadence. We'll see. I'll be right back with my conversation with Tom Nichols. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Donald Trump has been a focal point of American politics for about eight years now, and he's not going anywhere. So how should we approach his third presidential campaign? Tom Nichols is a political scientist and staff writer at The Atlantic. Tom Nichols, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. 
we have a lot of things to talk about. But the first thing I want to talk about is something that you were a little bit braggy about over the weekend. Moi? Yes, you, (laughs) you, you are. Yes. That's not the second person um, of French, I know. But I am an avid watcher of Succession. I saw this week's episode on Sunday night. You previewed that you were making a cameo and you said you'd be hard to find. I found you. You're on a television screen in the background. Am I right? Um, I was actually in several scenes. I was there when um, they pulled. Wait, us wait, all don't, in. don't wait, but be careful. Uh, no uh, spoilers. Uh, no spoilers. Um, I was there because the show takes place on election night, and so I was a pundit named Ben Stove. Um, <laughs> I don't. I I don't know why they chose that name. To me, it sounded suspiciously like Carl Rove. Um, why couldn't you just play yourself? That's what they do. Well, for, but that's know, because it's an alternate universe. There, I mean, all of us. They had four pundits. Uh, and three anchors, and they were all, except for um, Zach Robitus, who plays Mark Ravenhood, all of us were from media or uh, broadcast journalism. And they, it's just, it's greater verisimilitude. It's kind of fun. It puts you in the alternate universe of succession. So yeah, if, you, if you're looking for me, if you see episode eight, I'm there when the um, elections guy is reading us the riot act about not leaking results too early. I'm on a lot of TVs. I'm there when Khan is you know, uh, chewing somebody out on the phone. There's a great scene where Shiv and Roe are having this huge argument about something I won't talk about, but I'm on these big, I I look like I'm kind of, you know, like glowering down at them from these dual monitors. Um, I actually had lines. Um, We all had lines, but, you know, for a show like Succession, they film a ton of stuff. I read several pages of dialogue. Um, We did a lot of improv, but um, most of that ends up on the cutting room floor. Yeah, um, I should they, I should disclose to members of the the listening audience that all of my scenes in last the last episode of Succession were also cut. Yeah, <laughs> which is why okay. you didn't see me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and again, you know, we did it, but we did it very seriously. I mean, I took direction, um, did retakes of some you know things I set into the monitor. We had a lot of kind of pantomiming bits uh, so that we looked like we were busy in the background. I mean, I learned a lot. It was, it's still surreal to me that I was just on this, you know, incredibly successful and critically acclaimed um, television show. I I had the time of my life, but I also learned that, man, um, being on a TV show is really hard work. It's like a lot of hurry up and wait. It's a lot of, you know, eight, 10 hours wearing makeup, sitting still in front of a camera. It's um, it is not easy. I look forward to your Emmy. <laughs> All right, now let's talk about some more serious things. So shall we talk first about U.S. politics? Um, one of the many ongoing dumpster fires, yes. So there are various ways to ask this question, but I'm going to get to the heart of the matter. Based on current trends, current polling, the structure of democracy, the way elections are had, the Electoral College, all of that, and the state of play in both the Democratic and Republican parties, what is the likelihood in your mind that Donald Trump returns to the presidency? Um, better, way better than it should be. This is why I said dumpster fire. Dumpster fire. So how can that be? So explain, explain a little more those factors that I ticked off and how they lead us to a position in which he has a decent chance of returning to the presidency. Well, there's a perfect storm here of, um, you know, we're running out of metaphors, dumpster fire, perfect storm. But there is a perfect storm, a perfect confluence of st- structural and political factors. The political factor is that the Republican Party elites are afraid of their own voters. And the structural problem comes both with the nature of the primary system 
and with the Electoral College. And Trump's return to power is to thread um, the needle of the Electoral College because he can stomp all over the primary process. Nobody wants to run against him because the because even though I, I would argue that the number of people at this point in 2023 who support Donald Trump is actually um, smaller than it was the last time around, but they control the primary process. Um, people, you know, that is just the unfortunate reality is that the most aggrieved and cultish voters are the ones that are going to put Trump back as the nominee. Then- Can we pause on something? I'm sorry. I, sure. I, wanna, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I mean, actually, when people say they don't mean to interrupt you, they do mean to interrupt you, but I just apologize <laughs> for interrupting you. You said a second ago that, that Trump is trying to thread the needle. And you don't think of the sort of blunt, blunderbuss way that Trump goes about anything as threading a needle, right? But that's exactly what he did in 2016. So maybe when I say By Trump- accident? I don't think I, maybe I should be more careful, you know, that it's not Trump who's um, whose idea of subtle is to, you know, drop an anvil on your head like a Warner Brothers cartoon, um, but rather the people around him who are trying to engineer his return, um, just like the people who engineered it in 2016. They looked at the Electoral College map. They said this many voters, you know, in this many states equals 270. Um, Democrats have all I think it. You know, this is one place where I find Democrats exasperating because they say, well, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Well, that means exactly nothing in the American constitutional <laughs> system. Right. Yeah. You know, it's great. You had a two million well, vote you go back, majority many, in California. How many Republicans in the last 20, 24 years have won the popular vote? It's like two. Yeah, my my colleague David Frum has a great bit of math on this that I can't quite pull, pull out of my head right now, but it's something like, You'd have to be 50 years old to remember something like two GOP popular vote wins or something like that. Like at this point, if you're under a certain age, you've just kind of been living with um, presidents who are, you know, kind of skating in on the Electoral College, which, the you know, we can argue all day. Again, re- Democrats will say the Electoral College is unfair. Yes. Well, but those are the rules of the game you're going to have to win. Yeah, and it's Trump's like in football, people, if field goal is three points, touchdown depending is six points or more, and you can't say I scored more if all of your scores were field goals and the other team got touchdowns. And you may think that's unfair, and the multiplier should be different. But as you were pointing out, that's what the game is. Um, or to you know to steal a line from Godfather too. This is the business we've chosen. <laughs> right. um, you know that's that's the game you're in, and you just have to win that and. You know, running as if you're running for governor of California is a bad idea. So I think what Trump's people did was, I mean, if you look at the numbers, right? I mean, um, Hillary wins a big, um, Hillary Clinton wins a big majority over Trump. Joe Biden wins a big majority over Trump. But in the Hillary Trump contest, a switch of about, excuse me, in the Biden contest, a switch of about 70,000 votes scattered efficiently through the Electoral College would have returned Trump to office. And that's the, I think that's the situation we're going to face again. And now you've got these, you know, third party jokers running around, you know, that you're talking about an election where one or 2% in a handful of states will matter. And so Trump's path, this is what I mean about Trump's, you know, Trump's people threading the needle. Trump's path back to the White House 
is narrow, but actually, I think, way more likely than anybody wants to give it credit for and, and extremely dangerous because of the structural nature of our system. Am I right that there seems to be a complacency about Trump's return to office, not about the fact of it, but about the likelihood of it, even though it is far more likely uh, in the lead up to 2024 than it was in the lead up to 2016, either because you know a large number of people have grown tired of him, think his circus act is wearing thin, he faces indictment in one place, he got held liable for sexual abuse in another case, or maybe two or three more criminal cases to come, and people are sort of discounting the possibility Am I wrong about that feeling in the air? I don't know if it's complacency or exhaustion. Yeah. Well, which would be better? (laughs) Well, I mean, you can shake people out of complacency. It's difficult to rouse them out of exhaustion. Um, And I think some of it's complacency. And it's, you know, what we're calling complacency, Preet, I think some of it's denial. It's people saying nobody could do this again. I mean, you know, this no, no, no decent person would ever, you know, dot, dot, dot. But in fact, there are millions of people that are willing to do this again. And they, you know, back to that problem, they control the primary system and the primary is going to produce a guy who can thread his way through the electoral college. And it could happen. And I think people just don't want to believe that. But I also think people are just one of the things that they're exhausted. And I think one of the things that Trump really succeeded in doing was to grind us down into accepting the most deviant and horrible stuff as completely normal politics. He suffers no drop in approval among his base that I can discern, no matter what is thrown at him. And his famous adage, you know, that he turned it, you know, the statement that he turned into an adage, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, was utterly correct and prescient, wasn't it? Right. The one, Trump is, uh, he is palpably the stupidest human being ever to hold the Oval Office. But he has a innate, brilliant lizard brain about human weakness (laughs) And marketing. Are you maligning lizards? <laughs> yeah, I guess lizards leave you alone if you leave them alone. But um, he has a he has this kind of instinctual grasp of um, you know the the most uh, the darkest part of human nature, and he he knows you know people that have interacted with him talk about how he can be charming and manipulative and all of that stuff. I mean, the guy's a narcissist. And a sociopath, and he knows how to do that. And then when you team him up with what the Russians like to call political technologists, people wouldn't really know how to kind of turn the knobs of, of a political system, um, you're in a lot of danger. And I think people just don't want to deal with that again. They're just, they're tired. Let's apply a phrase that Biden has used, and let's apply it to the situation on the Republican side. And Biden keeps saying, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And he's, of course, I think, talking about the future general election. But Trump, before we get to the general, has to get the nomination. And we have Ron DeSantis all but declared. And we have some other people in the race. You know, you have said already that a lot of Republicans are scared of the Trump base. But some of them are at least showing or pretending to show that they're not afraid of Trump himself, right? They're not getting in line lockstep. A lot of people are going to jump into the race. Let's assess that. Put put DeSantis aside for a moment. We talk about him a lot. What about these other people like Asa Hutchinson and Nikki Haley? How are they supposed to run against Trump given the dynamic, the structure, and his loyal base? Oh, I'm sorry. Is Nikki Haley still running? Because, you know, I mean, the first thing I wrote about her... How do you mean, Tom? <laughs> um, 
and and uh, allow me to flog a piece I just wrote. Um, I about a about a month or two ago when she, or forever ago when she declared, I said, um, you know, this is a pointless campaign. She's not really running. She's not gonna. She's not criticizing Trump. She she thinks that this is a you know Republican primary circa. You know, nineteen, uh, you know, nineteen eighty. She's talking about you know um, po- po- wonky policy details, and then she just vanished. Um, you know, Asa Hutchinson has said the right things, but isn't it amazing that supposed Republican campaigns are handed you know this verdict and Trump's you know that that deposition tape where where Trump's behavior is just so hideous, and they can't. None of them want to use it to score a knockout punch. And part of the problem is this is 2016 again, when all of the Republicans said, wait, let him immolate himself and then we'll pick up his voters. Everybody was being too clever by half. I think if a Republican is really going to run against Trump in the primary, they're going to have to run with thunder, with brimstone. They're going to have to get up there and they're going to have to point their fingers, you know, and they might lose. But the only way to dent Trump I think, and this is counterintuitive because everybody thinks the way to beat Trump is to be like Trump. This is the Ron DeSantis approach, right? I'm Trump without the mess. I'm Trump, but less obviously racist and misogynist and crazy. Um, I think that, you know, the kind of the Asa Hutchinson move of just standing up there and saying, you know, this man cannot be allowed to be the standard bearer of our party. And I'm here to tell you, you know, and then lay out the things that the base supposedly does care about. Because otherwise, why take a fake Trump when you have a real one sitting right there? No, isn't the best argument I've always thought at this moment against Trump is that he will lose, that he is a loser. A, it undercuts what he thinks his brand is. It's the thing that will, you know, cut him most deeply. And it's demonstrably true. I don't think you have to choose between those arguments. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing is like, you know. Trump can't win. Trump lost the midterms in 2018. He lost the election in 2020. Many of the candidates he supported in various elections lost. And if you really don't want the the Democrats and Biden, you can't have Trump because he's going to lose. And that that also is not necessarily as pejorative about Trump's attitudes and some of this other stuff he's doing. It's, It's a little bit more of a just straight up or down competitive argument. But I I don't think, you know, maybe since I have managed exactly zero winning political campaigns (laughs) in my life, I just, I I think that that is chickening out. I think that one of the things that Trump brought in 2016 was a kind of fearlessness, you know, finger in your chest, you know, willing to say anything. And every time somebody tries to make the, the other arguments about, well, you know, he couldn't win. And maybe there's a, they sound like establishment politicians. I mean, somebody, I, I think the only way you're going to do this is to, you know, pull Trump into the public light. I, I, I wish somebody had done this in 2016, by the way. I wanted somebody on that stage. I don't care who it was, Ted Cruz, Mitt Romney, whoever, to turn to Donald Trump and say, what the hell is wrong with you? You know, just stop the whole debate right there. Like, hold your hand up. Tell. But would that what, really work? He'd be like, what the hell's wrong with me? What the hell's wrong with you? You haven't done anything for the people, et cetera. You know, the retort writes itself, doesn't it? Sure. But have that fight in public to say, 
you know, you're not here because you care about any of that stuff. Listen to you. We're not, this is not a debate. And and I, I think, you know, I think I, I thought the guy who could have won the first Republican primary is the guy who held up his hand, pointed to the moderators and said, listen, this is a travesty. I'm going to walk off this stage. Right. But we're not going to have that. But we're not going to have that. Not because nobody's willing to do it necessarily, but because as I understand it, Donald Trump is not going to participate in primary debates. Right. Which is why you're going to have to find ways to draw him if you're going to run against him. And I don't think, you know, this is all wish casting, pre. Nobody's going to do this and nobody's going to run against him like this. Um, but the way the way it would have had to have been done is to draw him out in public, show up where he's speaking, counter program him, have your something, something that is just throwing haymakers at this guy because he counts. And this is something that both Republicans and Democrats still can't quite internalize. He counts on the on the adherence to civility and norms among other people. He counts on that. And he knows it's the weakness of other people who don't want to be as furiously offensive. Now, I'm not saying people need to go out there and be as offensive as Donald Trump, but the idea that you're going, you know, you can't play this kind of Senate game of my esteemed colleague whom I hate, um, you know, that's always the most fun, right? You you know that the most critical thing someone's about to say in the Senate is going to be determined by how long the windup is. My esteemed colleague, my close friend, the chairman of the committee, you know, and then it's a boom, it's a haymaker. Um, you can't play that way with Trump. He counts on other people to be civil, to be normal, to not to. I mean, look what he did to Caitlin Collins in that town hall. She there were a million times she could have stopped him and said, wait a minute. How are you smearing this woman again? Wait a minute. You know, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, you, don't, you don't think, as some people have said, or colleagues have said, that it was a, you don't think it was a master class of interviewing? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, sorry. Again, um, c- considering the number of presidents that I have successfully interviewed is zero, um, I will say as an observer and, and uh, someone watching that I thought he, and I wrote about this for The Atlantic the next day. I thought I think the expression I used was that he brushed her away like an in, like an annoying intern who was trying to fix his lapels. I mean, he just rolled right over her. Um, he finally got to the nasty person thing at the end, but by then it was just it was too late. And I I don't know I don't. But what do you? But in in fairness, but how are you supposed to interview the guy? Well, not that way. Not in front of an adoring crowd, for one thing. That was a setup. I mean, I I don't I shouldn't say that. I, should, I don't know that it was a you know, conscious setup, but to put somebody in that environment and say, interview this, you know, flaming fire hose of lunacy in front of a bunch of people. <laughs> Is that a know, new phrase? <laughs> flaming fire hose of lunacy? Because a, I, a I like pin, it. Pinata of, you know, neurosis. Um, you know, you can't, <clears throat> you can't interview him in front of a crowd of people that are going to keep clapping for him every time he says something wildly offensive. You know, you hold him there and you say, no, I'm not going to ask you about debt reduction like you're a normal person. I'm going to ask you about the fact that, you know, are why are you supporting a violent seditionist movement? Why are you offering to pardon, you know, hundreds of felons um, who are in jail for a violent insurrection against the government of the United States and just not let him go off, you know, because what he does, again, he wears out the interviewer who finally says, okay, I've asked you four times about abortion. Now I'm going to move on to the deficit. And I, now I'm going to move on to this. Now I'm going to move on to that. You can't, he defeats the normal political interview. You can't do it that way. I want to go back to this concept you mentioned, because I've been thinking about it since you said it a few minutes ago, this notion of exhaustion. Now, in some ways, people have opined that 
exhaustion of Trump, people being tired of his antics, is to his detriment. If you're making the opposite point, which I think is a very valid one, that it's exhaustion that serves him. It's in his favor on the part of his opposition. Well, let me let me just, um, you know, um, be a, uh, a classic, um, what I used to be, a professor, and say, well, I actually agree with both sides. Um, <laughs> You're threading uh, the needle there, Tom. I'm threading needles, right? Um, so I think exhaustion among his opponents um, leaves them kind of helpless. That's the, that's the, the kind of the Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis problem, right? Of, you know, the guy, the guy's made out of Teflon and no matter what we throw, it doesn't stick. And we just kind of don't know what to do. I do think, and I said, again, I said this about the Caitlin Collins interview. Look, I want Trump on TV as much as possible because he does exhaust um, independent voters. His, his base can't get enough of him. The Democrats, you know, and other people who care about democracy, um, you know, can't bear to watch him. Um, but the people whose votes could really tip the balance are the people that, the, you know, you and I and everybody else follows politics, right? We call them the normals, right? The normal folks out there who aren't political junkies, they can kind of rationalize themselves. Well, I haven't seen Trump do something. You know, he's not that crazy. And wasn't that bad of four years, was it? Because I didn't really see. I think one of the key moments in, in the 2020 election that was lost even before 2020 is when they finally had to pull him off his um, afternoon COVID pressers. The day he started talking about, you know, sticking UV lights up your wherever, you know, and injecting bleach and all of that stuff. Um, I think that's when people said, Jesus, you know, this this guy is not. He's not right. And I was like, more pressers, more. Put him out there every day. And finally, his own staff and other Republicans apparently just tackled him around the legs and said, just get off TV. They know that a lot of unfiltered Trump hurts him politically. The problem with things like the CNN interview is that Trump was able to completely command that environment and had a foil to work off of. He had an attractive young woman. You know, his he was right in his comfort zone. He had her to use as a foil while he played to applause and, and laughter and, and clapping. Those those White House pressers were a disaster because he just stood there and immolated himself every afternoon in front of stone-faced reporters um, while the people behind him in his own administration looked like they were, you know, seasick. That's the kind of thing that I mean about exhaustion is that when you see more and more of that, I think a lot of ordinary voters say, oh, right, now I remember why this guy is is just too much of a sociopath and a danger to put back in the Oval. May I suggest a strategy? And maybe I'm, I'm suggesting this because it falls in my bailiwick, and that is more depositions. More depositions of Trump. You know, that yeah. deposition that we saw at that trial, parts of what he said, I think, had not been focused on enough and have been underrated. He's shown the Access Hollywood tape, and he's asked. In this video... I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the Well, that's what it's... If you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. First Jeez. of all, is that a tacit admission of evolution, <laughs> even though he has the, the time intervals wrong? 
Uh, and does he lose you know, certain aspects of the religious vote because of that admission? And then he said, unfortunately or fortunately. That an incredible phrase that will, you know, go into the presidential lexicon. It's been that way for millions of years, fortunately or unfortunately. But again, Preet, here's the question. Why aren't his primary opponents putting that in their ads and saying, look, this is Donald Trump. This is who he is. Because again, who's the pro- who are these contests going to turn on? Primarily women who, whenever they get a good look at Donald Trump, they hate him. And rightly so. Um, you know, why isn't Ron DeSantis taking that ta- that that footage, um, you know, or Nikki Haley or Asa Hutchinson or anybody else? Why aren't they taking that footage, cutting an ad and saying, this is who he is. This is who I'm running to replace. And as you pointed out, and this is why he will lose if he is our nominee. It's very strange. And then we'll talk about some other stuff. But it's in the history of politics, and I have also managed precisely zero successful or unsuccessful campaigns, that in the history of politics, as I can recall it as a citizen and as an observer, political opponents go after absolutely everything, large and small, that is a potential weak spot with respect to their adversary, whether it's a parking ticket or allegation of sexual abuse or campaign finance violation, or they've got a brother or a relative or a son who may have engaged in shady, you know, everything is fair game and everything is attacked on the, on the idea that you don't know what's going to stick. Can you think of another example of a candidate who got a complete buy, what would otherwise traditionally be something to be attacked in modern history? No, but I think part of the problem, and I know I'm going to swipe, um, you know, George Will's observation here, but never in modern history has a major political party feared its own voters and, you know, basically had such contempt for its own voters you know, that we're, we're in this situation. Because the other problem here is that the, the institutional Republican Party could band together <clears throat> by the institutional party. I mean, the RNC, the senior electeds, you know, Mitch McConnell, the other worthies, uh, you know, and, and potentates of the party, but they don't want to be punished in their own primaries. Um, now, you would think that guys like Romney and McConnell and others who aren't going to, you know, I shouldn't say aren't going to run for reelection, there's always, you know, Grassley and, you know, who people think they're going to be senators, Feinstein, you know, they think they're going to be senators until they're they're um, a zillion years old. But um, they're simply so afraid of their own voters that they're they're spending their time, I think, calming down their donors and kind of saying, well, you know, we'll just work around it. We'll deal with it. We'll do the other stuff you want us to do. Don't worry about this. Instead of saying we, you know, we need to be on a mission here to rescue the party of Lincoln. And the way you saw that was twice. They could have impeached him, convicted him, and said, okay, he can't run for office. That's just the Constitution. Time to move on. That second impeachment was a golden opportunity for senior Republicans to kind of get together and say, we have to rule out another Donald Trump run because we all know the guy is a, you know, the leader of a violent seditionist movement. But they are so afraid of their own voters, and they're also so afraid of not winning like anything, you know, any any House or Senate race that's a loss to the to the Republicans is now like the end of human civilization. And so they just can't they can't, you know, think their way out of this because they've internalized the notion that they are kind of the last barrier, you know, the, the last Roman legion holding back the Huns. 
or something. And so they're, they're just stuck in this loop over and over again. It's a very weird dynamic, what you describe, for a party to be both in fear of its voters, which I get, but also to hold them in contempt, right? Because another yeah. way of looking at fear of your voter, of your voters is you know, some begrudging respect for them. You know, democracy requires, in part, in some versions, to acquiesce in the, in the wishes of and the policies that are favored by your electorate, by your voters, by the people on your side. And I find that somewhat intention with also holding them in contempt. No? Parties used to have a pedagogical function and a kind of boundary setting function to say, look, you know, um, um, I don't know, pick an issue. You know, um, we're Republicans. Um, we don't go on tirades against corporations. Why? Because we think what's good for GM is good for America. You know, free enterprise society. The Democrats could say, look, we don't, uh, you know, we don't support union busting um, and uh, big trusts. We're the party of, you know, the working man, et cetera, et cetera. They used to communicate those messages. That has that dynamic, especially in the Republican Party, has been turned on its head with a bunch of guys standing around in Washington saying, look, we like living in Washington. Um, we have a few things we want to do and enrich ourselves. What is it you want us to do here? And basically, it's this transactional relationship that says, look, don't, you know, don't yell at us. Don't not, don't make us come home. Don't throw us out of our offices. You don't much like us and we don't much like you, but we have a common enemy. We're going to, we're all going to own the libs together. So just tell us what, what you want us to say. That's not a party. I mean, the Republicans have become utterly incoherent as a conservative. I mean, they're the party of, now they're the party of big government, which, you know, they talk, there are times when the Republicans um, you know, talking to white rural voter, um, voters are almost indistinguishable sounding from the way Democrats were talking to inner city voters in the early 1970s, which is amazing to me, right? The party of personal responsibility. It's not your fault. It's, you know, the opioid makers, um, jobs are scarce. It's China. It's this, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just this incredible role reversal but the deal is, and this is where you can kind of wed that fear to that contempt. The deal is, again, we don't like you. You don't like us, but I don't want to come home. I like living in Washington. So you're going to let me live here and I'll say all the nasty things that you want said to people that you hate. And that'll be our deal. And you leave me alone and I'll do the things you want me to do. But I get to stay here in Washington and, and I'll report back to you on how many libs I owned at the end of the day. Yeah, look, that's another way of, of saying that a winning political strategy is to have the right enemies when people feel really strongly about those enemies, right? Well, but you also create those enemies. I mean, that then it becomes a feedback loop because, um, you know, I was talking yesterday to Mehdi Hassan. I was, on, I was doing Mehdi Hassan's show and we were saying, you know, normally we would have a lot of disagreements about a lot of things, but no one in America is really having those arguments anymore. You know, it's like, you're my enemy politically because you believe in big budgets and a lot of, you know, social spending on the social safety net. And I'm your enemy because I'm a, all about big defense budgets and, you know, cutting off the oxygen with the federal debt and all that stuff. That's a that's an argument Republicans and Democrats used to have. And it was part of how the country was governed to that push and pull back on things like that. Those arguments don't really exist anymore. And so what happens is you had guys like Tucker Carlson going on the air every night and saying, here, here's your new enemies list. Here's the people you should hate. And here's why. Um, and, you, you know, in some cases, just, you know, inventing stuff 
to the point where you get, you know, hauled into court for defamation. So it's not just having the right enemies. It's creating the right enemies and then and then running against that. I'll be right back with Tom Nichols after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So from domestic political war, do you like this segue? (laughs) We talk about the war in Ukraine, which has been going on for quite a while now. You cover it, you focus on it, and have studied these issues. How would you describe how that's going and where it's going? Yeah, I mean, I I have I, my career began in Russian and Soviet politics, and I taught national security stuff for the Navy for years. And um, I think, without trivializing the amount of human suffering that's going on, whenever I look at the Kremlin, I think of that Watergate line. The truth is, these aren't very bright guys, and things got out of control. Um, I think that's exactly what's happened. That Putin and P- Small Cadre said this will be over in a week. It's now been 15 months. The staggering incompetence of everybody involved from the the heart of power in the Kremlin all the way down to uh, field officers is astonishing. And so I think it's a true feat of arms that the Ukrainians have held out against a country, you know, three times their size at this point. And I think it's going to get worse for the Russians. There's been this interesting bickering now with the Wagner guys and the Russian Ministry of Defense. Um, there was a report uh, just in the past few days about um, whether or not the the Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner Group, was going to sell out some Russian military positions in exchange for the Ukrainians letting up on his guys. I, I don't know if that's true, um, but it's now out there in reporting. And I'm sure there are people in the Kremlin walking around saying, wondering if that happened as well. Um, but the, the number of um, casualties that the Russians are taking are, and this is where I think things get a little scary. So I'm sorry for the long wind up to the bearing the lead here. The number, the, the amount of casualties they're taking are so high. And this, this war has been such a disaster that it is a, an outcome that could destabilize the Russian regime. And once things get unstable in Moscow, we are in some really scary territory. But I'm confused because the, the sense I have gotten from reporting is that the, the domestic sentiment in Russia is not that negative and not that negative towards Putin, notwithstanding how badly it's going. Is that because of propaganda? Well, it's also the problem of trying to do polling in a, basically a fascist country. But so so all, you, don't, you don't believe it? You think there's a lot of discontent? Yes, but I also don't think discontent is what brings down a, a, a regime in the Kremlin. I, when I say instability, I'm talking about um, finger pointing and backstabbing and- And other powerful actors taking action. And other people take, right. And I, I don't know that that will happen, but remember the, the Kremlin leader, one of the things that's really different about Kremlin politics now, in the old days, 
<laughs> I mean, I'm going to sound even mildly nostalgic for the way the Soviets ran things. But, um, you know, let me just say clearly, I'm not they were, nostalgic. Were the Soviets for, predictable? Uh, they were more predictable because, and this is the this is my point, they were a, a collective leadership. You know, they were, uh, you know, a dozen guys sitting around a table. And you can see, I mean, if people ever wanted to fall down this rabbit hole, you can go to places like the National Security Archive or the um, Wilson Center and read transcripts of how they ended up going into Afghanistan, for example. Um, but for example, mafia, something farther, something farther back, just playing off what you said a second ago. Sure. The placement of missiles in Cuba that led to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, that was, we didn't like it. And it almost brought us to, on, to the verge of, of nuclear war. But arguably that was completely rational on the part of the Soviets, or was it not? Um, it was a complete, it was a terrible miscalculation by people who thought they understood our system of government better than they really did. Um, who How do you compare that, that miscalculation to the invasion of Ukraine? Um, Ukraine's worse. I think Ukraine is perhaps one of the greatest. I mean, I think it's bigger, a bigger miscalculation than America entering Vietnam, than America invading Iraq, than Soviet Union putting missiles in Cuba. Um, because this is all dependent. How about Germany invading Russia? Well, uh, when I say the modern era, I say since Operation Barbarossa. I mean, since World War II. Um, but, yeah, so the, you put the invasion of Ukraine at the very, very top of the list of military blunders of all time. Certainly of the of the, the past hundred years. Close to the top. Because uh, um, this was all dependent on one man. This is a mafia state. This is not a bunch of guys. This is not the commission even, you know, if we're going to talk mafia talk. This isn't five or six guys. This is one guy who now has to basically, you know, stay in power like Tony Soprano. And I think that part of the reason, um, I have a very smart colleague on Russian politics um, who still teaches at the Naval War College, the name Nick Vozdev, and he pointed out, you know, a lot of times um, with Putin, he doesn't want super competent guys running this war because then they're a threat to him. So this is this the nature of the regime has now trapped Putin and his military in this disaster because he doesn't want I mean any anybody else in in any normal situation you'd have fired your minister of defense by now but he doesn't yeah. because his minister of defense is kind of a you know not very competent um doesn't have the political base apparently to challenge him um so he keeps running the war and Russian kids keep dying and keep killing Ukrainians. So at this moment, is it in the West's interest for there to be instability at the peak of power in in Russia? Uh, or I don't think we should play that game. I don't think we should play the let's see if we can influence internal dynamics. I think. Yeah. Why is that? Um, why, why not? Well, because it usually backfires. And, you know, you brought up the Cuban Missile Crisis, just as the Soviets misinterpreted our system of government. I don't want our government trying to um, figure out how to play chess inside a Kremlin that they can't really control or see a lot of what's what's going on in. Um, but I do think I, I was I was a go slow guy. I was a in the first three months of this war, I was like, this thing has blown up in Putin's face. Don't escalate right now. You know, don't send a bunch of NATO jets that he can then use as a pretext for claiming that NATO has entered the war and so on. I think a year and you know a year and and change later. It is time to start sending those weapons. It is time to start sending jets and um, longer range um, missiles, like the Brit, like the British have done with sending 
uh, storm shadow. Uh, you know, it's time to say, look, the, the the best thing for the West and for humanity is to end this war with a Russian defeat quickly, and then let the chips fall in, inside the Kremlin where they may. But we're we're not trying to do that. I mean, I think it's again, I we're think, too late for it to be quickly, isn't it? By definition, it's no longer. Even if it happens, it's no longer quick. I don't want to argue the semantics of quickly. Um, I think, I guess my um, cheap answer would be compared to what? Right. <laughs> um, you know, compared to Afghanistan or Vietnam? Yeah, a year. But is there anything in the current dynamic that suggests that it can end in either direction anytime soon? Well, it depends on, you know, again, uh, boy, I, I am being all professorial. Aren't I? Well, it depends on what you mean by end, Preet. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of, First of all, I think ending the possibility that the Russians can engage in offensive operations, where I think they're they're pretty much there. That military strategists call this, um, you know, culmination, right? That you've reached the point where you simply cannot engage in offensive actions any further. Um, you know, World War Three ends. Excuse me, World War Two ends in 1945 formally, but the point where everybody knew that the Germans were defeated was in late 42, early 43 at Stalingrad. At that point, the Nazis were going to be on the defensive for the rest of the war. It was just a matter of how fast they could back up. And you think you think Russia is there or almost there? I think Russia is almost I think the idea that the Russians can, uh, you know, of course, this is one of those things that will bite me in the ass the minute I say it, because as a Sovietologist, we should have learned, never predict. Um, but it, I think my my sense is that the Russians are are pretty close to the point where um, conducting large-scale offensive operations can be almost impossible for them. Of course, it depends on what the Ukrainians do, and it depends on um, what kind of things the Russians want to throw into the fight. But I, I am not alone in this. Um, I think I've seen other military experts who who think that the Russians have reached that point, which is now that now a matter of you know how successful the Ukrainian counteroffensive would be. First, for one thing, they're running out of guys. I mean. It's a that, big country. How are they running out of guys against a smaller country? Because, um, for one thing, it's a big country, but it's an old country. You need guys from a certain demographic. And also, Putin's deal with the Russian people is, I am not going to do a big, wide draft. Um, you know, I'm going to take a bunch of bumpkins out of the, you know, out of the Russian boonies. And, I'm prison. send, and prisons. Right? Well, for, for one thing, you don't. If you have enough guys, you don't raid your prisons because having prisoners as soldiers, that sounds like a really cool, you know, plot for a graphic novel, but it usually doesn't work well. Um, you don't want to be the company commander, you know, who's got a bunch of hardened, you know, murderers and rapists and burglars, you know, in your command um, and and have to remind them that you're in charge. That that usually doesn't end well. <laughs> you don't want to give those guys weapons. Well, and then tell them, you know, and then give them orders and and shoot that way and shoot that way. And, you know, when they say, and what if I don't want to do that, comrade captain? Uh, well, you know, whatever you think. Are the sanctions working or are they underwhelming? Um, the Russian elites are still managing to live pretty well. The problem with sanctions is that an authoritarian government can always move the pieces around the table to, to hurt other people rather than themselves. I mean, I'm, I, I think sanctions are important. I think strangling the Russian economy so that it can't divert more money into the war machine um, is important. But I think people should always be wary of quick results from sanctions. Sanctions, the history of sanctions in and the case studies of sanctions is that they take a long time to have an effect, if, if they eventually have an effect at all. 
um, you've got to you've got to hurt the people running the war and the people at the top supporting running the war, and that's that's hard to do. There's always enough money to you know bribe and get around. We learned this, by the way, we learned this the hard way with um, Saddam in in Iraq. We thought we'd we'd managed to get around this with the oil for food program, and we thought we had him penned in by sanctions, um, but you know, even there, a much easier case for sanctions. Um, there was a lot of leakage and there was a lot of um, skullduggery. And, you know, Russia has a lot of money and a lot of oil and a lot of ability to get around those sanctions. I've asked one or more other people who've been on the show this question. I want to know what you think. If something were to happen to Putin tomorrow, right, and he's not a young man and there are always these reports about ailments that he may or may not have, if he were to be off the scene tomorrow, other people have said, that won't change anything in the trajectory of the war in Ukraine. Whoever succeeds him will double down and pursue the same strategy. Do you agree with that? No, but I also, I also agree that it doesn't change things overnight. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, whoever the new guy is, he's going to come in and say, of course, I'm going to continue this war against the, you know, the Ukrainian Nazis and their Jewish president. Uh, The difference will be that whoever comes in uh, again, and you know, we're kind of wish casting, right? If something if Putin were to, you know, vanish from the planet tomorrow, um, it's not their war. They don't own it and identify with it in the same way that Putin does. Because remember, f- from everything we can tell, no one around Putin wanted him to do this. Like there was no constituency for this. This is what I mean about earlier about the collective leadership, where you know, going into Afghanistan, they all looked around that table. You know, the the old uh, bulls of the Politburo, Gromyko and Andropov, and, you know, they all looked at each other and said, well, we all chose this together. In Putin's case, if he were gone, everybody in the room would look at each other and say, well, that was a stupid idea. And boy, I, I didn't want to do it. And um, and I think that that would open the door for something to happen. Um, if you want a reason from Cold War history, one of the reasons that um, the Korean War dragged on after its first few years and, and that was such a stalemate is that Stalin was still alive and he just wouldn't allow it. He just said, you know what? What did he care? You know, was, weren't Soviet troops dying when the whole thing, the, the invasion of South Korea was supposed to be a, you know, one week lightning strike and it almost worked right. By the time we turned it back, they were already down at Pusan. And then it turns into this long slog along the 38th. And Stalin said, good. Let it drag on. What do I care? It pins the Americans down. It helps our guys test military technology. He said all these things. This was all in declassified records. Um, and then when Stalin dies, amazingly, um, there turns out to be room for a ceasefire and cessation of hostilities. Oh, it's interesting. I mean, one of the, I guess, intentional or accidental features of American democracy and the, the two-term limit presidency is that, I suppose, and tell me if you agree with this, that over the long term, the U.S. is less likely to have long wars because there's a different human in charge every few years. Fair? I, except that there are these case except studies. For <laughs> except for and Vietnam. Vietnam. Um, you know, I think the potential for America, I mean, Americans, the problem is Americans want short, quick victories, but our wars drag on because then we stop paying attention to them. I was excoriated by a lot of people on the right for a piece I wrote called Afghanistan is Your Fault. Um, where I said, look, this war dragged on for 20 years because after the initial year or two, the American public just stopped paying attention to it and basically said, don't lose. You know, and then they went to the mall. 
unless you were a military person or a military family, this war just didn't touch you in any significant way. And even in the way Vietnam did, because there was a draft. So I don't, I don't know that I agree that, you know, turning over, I mean, we, you think about the Afghanistan, you know, Bush goes in, Obama stays, Trump stays, um, you know, it's, and then when Biden finally pulls out, people are furious at him that the Taliban came back, which, you know, was as predictable as the sunrise. Yeah. But do you think the American people remember the withdrawal much or they moved on from that too? I, I don't know. Polling data shows that Biden took a serious hit in his public approval um, at the time of the withdrawal. And it's been tough for him to come From which back. he has not recovered, arguably. Yeah, argue, yeah. I mean, now, you know, whether that's because of other things, I don't know. But it de- it definitely was the kind of the first, I think it was the end of the honeymoon for, for Biden. You tweeted something recently that reminded me of an exchange that you and I had about a year ago. And you tweeted, you know, there's a reason that political scientists after World War II spent a lot of time defining and categorizing types of authoritarians. For the same reasons, oncologists don't just declare that all cancer is cancer, and it doesn't matter what kind. You'll recall that I I sort of uh, helped to prompt you to write a piece about the various types of authoritarians and forms of government and what they are and what they are not. Why is it important that we are careful in how we throw around words like autocracy, totalitarianism, fascism, etc.? Because words have meanings and programs for action. Um, you know, I'm glad you asked me about this because it just, it, it infuriates a lot of my um, friends on the left when I say, you know, stop throwing around the word fascist. I mean, that's, that's a Well, I agree scald- with you on that. You know, and it's I, a pretty and I, and scalding word. That. But it matters because, uh, let me, let me first say, think of all the things we did 20 years ago by declaring everything terrorism. That's why we have a Homeland Security Departments, why we had a Patriot Act, why we had a Director of National Intelligence. Everything in the world that we didn't like became terrorism. And we also got into bed with a lot of people that we probably shouldn't have because they came to us and said, hey, you know what? We're fighting terrorism. And it became an incantation. And I think that, or, and, or war, right? We have a war on poverty. We have a war on drugs. We have a war on terror. Um, people need to be careful about this. If I really thought that we were now in a moment of, you know, a, a struggle with a fully formed and capable fascist organization. You know, pre you're the lawyer. I mean, I would be arguing for things like taking measures to fight that, that fascist movement that would include things like curtailing our civil liberties, expanding the ability of the of the federal law enforcement and national security bureaucracies. Uh, I would be looking at a purge of the U.S. armed forces. I'd say, okay, this is a fascist movement. We need to find out how many of our officers and senior enlisted people are actually members of this movement. And they can't, you know, this is what happened. If you really want to make the Nazi comparison, part of what happened that enabled Nazism was the very carefully legally engineered change in oath that captured the German military. Um, you know, if I really thought that these were things we needed to do, I would advocate for them. But I, I'm not sure that a lot of Americans, I, I think, you know, part of the reason I'm loath to do that is because I think that's like saying I have, you know, here is your tumor and it's small and we can excise it. And and if you call it fascism, it's like, OK, but we're going to do a full course of the most radical chemo that we can pause and when it might almost kill you. And I just think that that's a, that's a category error. I think that's a tremendous mistake. And people are using this word because it has such incantatory power. 
It's not enough to say, hey, these guys are bad news. They're authoritarians. They are, they are enemies of the American system of government. It's, it's satisfying to say fascist, even though I think, you know, that you're, you're numbing people to that word. And I, I'm going to end on the most depressing note I can. Keep the power of that word because you might need it sooner than you think. By the way, I just want to say in passing that a very excellent underused word is incantatory. Thank you. Which, which I did very well you know, on my SATs. I think that's a well <laughs> and Jeopardy champion, and maybe we'll, yeah, maybe, well, maybe we'll get to that. If not this time, then the next. So, so help help people understand when they should use the term fascist versus authoritarian versus totalitarian. Well, Trump, I I I um, did an interview a while back with Tom Jocelyn, who was one of the January sixth committee guys, and he said Trump's an autocrat. You know, like he he's about himself. One of the things that I fear is that Trump has created the raw material for fascism in part by destroying any shared notion of reality, right? That between Trump and Fox, you have millions of people who believe, who are willing to believe absolutely insane things. But when there's a leader who says, you know, this isn't just about me. It's about the movement. It's about building cadres. It's about making sure that state by state, we have people we can rely on. One of the first things the Nazis did was to destroy local government. People forget that the American federalist system is highly resistant to this, that, you know, you can say, well, you know, I'm the new leader of a national fascist movement, and there are going to be people in Massachusetts and Vermont and California and, you know, Illinois who are going to say, well, bully for you, that and a quarter gets you a cup of coffee, pal. Um, that's a difference in our system that did not exist in the countries that felt fascism. Uh, in the 1930s. So I would look for things like that. Trump at his big rally in Waco, and boy, talk about, you know, symbolism. It was all about him. People started leaving early. Sorry, but this is not a particularly resonant fascist appeal. There was no, you know, real there there other than you should all protect me because I hate the people that you hate. And I think Maybe I'm just too steeped in the old totalitarianism to me, you know, the 1930s fascism of the left is Stalinism, you know, Nazism, um, Italian fascism. I think, you know, when there is a disciplined party, which the Republicans most certainly are not, um, when there is a, you know, an alternative uh, military force, when the military is captured, I mean, I'm sorry, but fat, people call Ron DeSantis a fascist. Fascists don't get their ass handed to them by Disney's lawyers, you know? Um, <laughs> That's a very you know, interesting way to put it. You know, people people keep saying to me, well, what you're saying is they're ineffective fascists. Well, okay, you know, they're authoritarians. For You know, there, we have plenty of models of what the Republicans are doing in places like Latin America in the 50s, right? For my friends, everything. For my enemies, the law. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. But to fascism, I think, just trying to keep pull that word out to see if you can kind of electrify and jolt people. You're wearing out that word. And again, I, I will say, I will mutter darkly here and say, keep that word handy because you may need it sooner than you want. Well, there's another word on the other side of the spectrum that people also wield in a little bit the same way. And that word is socialism <laughs> as wielded by conservatives. And in this piece that I, I'm, I'm very happy I prompted you to write, you, you say under socialism what it is, state ownership of the means of production. One more time for the people in the cheap seats, state ownership of the means of production. And then you say what socialism isn't. High taxes, a generous welfare state, 
government participation in the economy, government shareholding in business, et cetera, et cetera. Why are those distinctions important? This goes back to our discussion about creating new enemies, right? That, um, you know, if you can pull the word socialism in to mean all evil things, then anything becomes socialism. And you can fill that with any policy that isn't completely, you know, laissez-faire capitalism. But I think it's also important because it inoculates people against thinking clearly about stuff that happens every day. If you're going to call everything socialism, well, you know, if, if you're one of those conservatives who says, you know, oh, well, big government is socialism. Well, then you better think about that before you go out and pick up that social security check. <laughs> right. It creates the kind of intellectual dysfunction that people, you know, say, can say, tell the government to keep its hands off my Medicare. Uh, how, what does that, you know, what does that even mean? It also, if you really are opposed to socialism, as I am, um, it means be on the lookout for the government nationalizing industries or saying, you know, the nation's uh, internet is too valuable to be run by little companies. We're going to have the, the internet of the government in the United States. Boeing is too important to our economy to be left alone. The government's going to take over Boeing and on and on and on. And that, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think is is just bad um, for a lot of reasons in a democracy, but also um, economically dysfunctional. But we're at a point now where, you know, socialism is, uh, you got a traffic ticket. It's socialism. My favorite section of this piece that you wrote is when you describe libertarianism. <laughs> you write, <laughs> libertarianism, what it is, whatever you want, what it isn't, whatever you don't want. And then you put in parenthetical, I will get angry mail from libertarians, but that was inevitable the moment I wrote libertarians. Yeah, I'm sorry. I mean, I just, the libertarian movement is not a, it's not a serious movement. Libertarianism is like, um, I always think of it as a phase that one of my friend's kids went through. It's like, yeah, from about 16 to 18, he was a libertarian. And then, you know, you sort of realize the world's a little more complicated. Um, and, and the fact is that libertarian parties around the United States have, shown us how completely unserious they are. And I think even though my definition was a little tongue in cheek, that I, that kind of is what it is. Like, you know, leave me alone. I don't want to be bothered with taxes or any kind of social obligations, but the highways, but thanks, highways, for, the highway. but yeah. thanks for the highways, <laughs> you know, the exactly. Highway. It's like, and the water better be clean and, and, you know, the air traffic system better be running well. Um, and I, I just think that it's a, I think there's something kind of infantile about, lib, about libertarianism, um, because there's no content there. Look, most people have some moral orientation toward politics. They have a normative or orientation to say some things are good, some things are bad, some things are desi desirable and other things aren't. It's the kind of right order of society question. And libertarianism, you know, no matter how many times you try and pull that out of them, it, it always kind of dissolves back into um, just leave me alone, but make sure the highways are paved. And that's not a country. That's not that's not a society. On that note, Tom Nichols, thanks again for being on the show. We'll have you back soon. And have some lamb biryani in the meantime. I will try and find some. Thanks, Preet. My conversation continues with Tom Nichols from members of the Cafe Insider community. We talk about the late Senator John Hines and the GOP's future. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Tom Nichols.
If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Thank you.